Ray and Carol Lehman reside in Pennsylvania. One summer, they loaded their large family into the car and they drove to the West Coast. If you've ever made one of these cross-country road trips, you know it's very, very, very long drive. It takes almost forever. And it becomes even longer when there are kids in the car. To break up the trip, Carol decided to have a family kindness day. Each family member, their name was placed in the hat. And everyone drew out a name. The challenge was to be as kind as possible to the person you drew. And it was a great idea. In the car, at the pit stops, throughout the day, everyone found a kind deed to do for the person to whom they'd been assigned. In fact, Carol's idea went so well, the next day her youngest son, Darrell, he asked to do it again. This time he passed the hat and everyone picked out a name. Well, once again, the family went out of their way to pour out love and affection to the person to whom they'd been assigned. Well, it took until around lunchtime to notice a peculiarity. Little Darrell was enjoying an unprecedented amount of attention and love and kindness. After an investigation, it was revealed that Darrell had written his name on all the papers that he had placed in the hat. He was hoarding the family's affections. And yet it's understandable, isn't it? We all crave kindness and love. No one can ever get enough encouragement. You know, sometimes we, we reluctant, we're reluctant to, be, to pass on a word of encouragement for fear of giving the other person the big head. We worry about inflating their ego. But trust me, that never ever happens. None of us get enough encouragement. Author Doug Fields, he proposes a litmus test to tell if a person still needs encouragement. He says, if a person is breathing, they need encouragement. Hey, life tears us down. Life roughs us up. Life can punch us drunk and slap us silly. Our world is a discouraging place. Beatdowns occur daily. In fact, are you down for the count? Hey, are you on the verge of giving up? You know, for some of us, 2011 was a brutal year. It was some tough sledding. Perhaps you could use some encouragement. Well, today, I come with words of hope. It reminds me of the Hall of Fame basketball coach, John Wooden. Coach Wooden led UCLA to 10 national titles. And he had a rule on his team. Whenever a player scored a basket, he was required to wink or nod or smile at the teammate who had passed him the ball. Once when instructing the team about this rule, one of the new players asked, but coach, what if he's not looking? Wooden replied, I guarantee you he'll be looking. You see, Coach Wooden knew that we all are looking for a little affirmation. We all want a little encouragement. It's been said, man does not live by bread alone. He also needs some buttering up. It doesn't take long for a man or a woman or a child to become starved for encouragement. Humans need daily doses of propping up. Several years ago, my wonderful wife threw me a surprise birthday party. In fact, some of you were there to help me celebrate my 50th birthday. 
Kathy had the house decorated with scores and scores of these colorful helium-filled balloons. They added to the festive mood. But afterwards, those balloons were a source of sadness. For it didn't take long for them to lose their helium. I mean, like the very next day. The morning after all the fun, those festive balloons were nothing but shriveled up pieces of plastic hanging from a string. As pretty as a balloon looks with helium, one deflated looks even uglier. I'll never forget sitting alone in the living room the morning after the big party thinking about those balloons. And I remember asking God if those balloons were a metaphor for my life. Is being 50 years old like a soaring, colorful, festive balloon? Or is it more like a piece of shriveled up plastic just hanging on? After a few years now in my 50s, I can say it's a little bit of both. A little bit of soaring, a little bit of hanging on. I've drawn one conclusion. As a balloon needs helium, man, I need encouragement. Today, doctors hasten the healing process by performing all kinds of complex, invasive surgeries, bypasses, and ectomies, and transplants, and reconstructions, and stents, etc., etc. But you know, when it comes to the healing of the soul, sometimes a simple pat on the back remains the best therapy. I've heard it put, a pat on the back though only a few vertebrae removed from a kick in the pants, is miles ahead in results. Hey, we all desperately need encouragement. And once again, Jesus comes to the rescue. Our Lord Jesus comes to us with hope for this new year. Here in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus quotes an Old Testament messianic prophecy that spoke of Himself. Isaiah 42 describes the Messiah and the nature of His ministry. I love the chapter. In verse 1, God said, I have put My Spirit upon Him. Verse 4 declares of Jesus, He will not fail. Verse 6 calls Him a light to the Gentiles. Verse 7 predicts Jesus will open blind eyes and bring out prisoners. Verse 9, we're told that Jesus will do new things. In light of all that Isaiah 42 predicts of Messiah, Verse 10 commands, sing to the Lord a new song and His praise from the ends of the earth. But of all of the pungent promises there in Isaiah's prophecy, there is one prediction that captures and stirs my imagination more than all the others. It's in verse 3. It's the passage that Jesus quotes here in verses 20 and 21 of Matthew chapter 12. Let's read them. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name Gentiles will trust. If you're looking for encouragement, and if you've come to Jesus, you've come to the right place. Jesus is all about encouraging, not extinguishing. To the bruised reed, he is a splint. And to the smoking flax, He is a flint. Here's what our text teaches us. Jesus is both a splint and a flint. On the banks of the Jordan River, reeds grow high toward the sky. The bulrushes there rise upwards. 
as high as 18 feet above the water level. Their tip carries this beautiful white plume. Their base can be as thick as three inches in diameter. These reeds help with erosion control in the riverbed, but they have other purposes as well. The lower portion is often used as a cane or as a walking stick. The thinner middle section is often used to craft instruments, musical instruments like flutes and other woodwinds. The slender upper portion of the reed is used to carve pens and writing tools. Reeds were almost never used as weapons. Why? Because they lacked the appropriate strength. You remember when Jesus spoke of John the Baptist, he asked the multitudes, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken in the wind? I mean, reeds were flimsy. In fact, a fragile reed swaying in the wind became an idiom or a symbol for weakness. And a bruised reed, my, that was weaker still. You see, despite its intended use, a reed was useless when the stalk was bruised or when it was crippled. It didn't even require a complete break. Just the slightest bend in the stalk weakened it enough for it to be uprooted and tossed aside. Since reeds grew in clumps in the bulrushes, no one would take the time and effort to nurture back to health a single solitary bruised reed. It would be a waste of time and effort. No, you just throw it away. You just go back to the bulrushes for another reed. There were plenty of other reeds to choose from. And the same was true of smoking flax. Flax was a textile fiber grown for the garment industry. Various fabrics were made out of the stalks of the flax. The flax plant grows about two to four feet high, and it yields these big, beautiful blue flowers. Once the stalks, though, are harvested, they're laid out to dry. It's when the flax becomes parched that the stalks are easily shredded into the individual threads. The most common use of flax in Jesus' day was as a wick for the oil lamps. You see, dry flax fiber is highly flammable. A piece of thread into a lamp full of olive oil, you hit it with a spark and suddenly it'll ignite and it'll burn for a very, very long time. The trick was to keep the flax dry. Once it got doused with water, all it did was smolder and smoke. It really didn't catch fire. A wet wick was of no use. And just like a bruised reed, you threw away a smoking flax. I mean, you could purchase these dry wicks for a penny a pound. The time and effort it would take to reignite a smoldering wick was just a total waste. Just grab another. That'll suffice. Here's what I think. I think some of you here today, living in the 21st century, can best be described by these 2,000-year-old oriental images. Jesus' words, his idioms, his analogies are timeless. You might not have used these words earlier today, but as you think about it, this is how you feel inside. You feel like a bruised reed. You feel like a smoking flax. Like a broken reed, you've been damaged. You've been bent against your will this past year. You've been wounded. Your once tall stalk now has a break. Your weakness has been proven weaker still. 
You feel that the slightest breeze could blow you over. You know you couldn't stand another windstorm. You've assumed you're no longer fit for the purposes that God once intended. You feel like it's over for you. It would be easier for God just to go back to the riverbank and start over with another reed. And like smoking flax, smoldering flax, you're exhausted. Your enthusiasm, your your passion for life has been doused now by a million drops of disappointment. Hope for the future, even your willingness to love, has been extinguished. If I looked into the furnace of your heart this morning, I would feel a coldness. I would see a few dying embers of a once roaring fire. That's what I would find. Why would God waste time trying to rekindle wet wood? You've assumed He'd prefer fresh flax. But here, my friend, is what you don't realize. Jesus doesn't think the way we think. He's not so utilitarian. When Jesus builds or when He starts a fire, He actually prefers broken reeds and smoldering flax. Jesus hasn't given up on you. You see, Jesus is willing to invest in the bruised reed. He's willing to take time with the smoking flax. He refuses to write them off or abandon either. He cares for them both. Time used, effort spent, nurturing and healing provided is never a waste to Jesus. Listen carefully. There are no throwaway people in the eyes of Jesus. Several years ago, I saw a movie about an underdog racehorse. There's a scene early in the movie where an old horse trainer, he saves the injured thoroughbred from a bullet to the head. Well, later he's asked why. He replies, you don't throw a whole life away just because he's banged up a little. Please hear that again. You don't throw a whole life away just because he's banged up a little. That's what Jesus is saying to us in our text this morning. You see, Jesus created mankind to be far different than we turned out to be. When God scooped out of the ground a handful of dust to make that first man, he had perfection in mind. Then sin entered into the world, and life got hard, and we got hurt, and people got banged up a lot. But Jesus doesn't scrap the damaged goods. He doesn't haul us off to the landfill. It would be easy for Jesus to throw away the bruised reed and the smoking flax. He could find another, but that's not in His nature. That's not how Jesus treats people. In the eyes of our Lord Jesus, there are no throwaway people. And the Bible is full of such examples. You know them well. Jacob, you remember Jacob? What a shady character he was. From the very start, he was a double-crosser. I mean, the man was born clutching onto the heel of his twin brother. There was competition in the birth canal. Greedy little Jacob tried to slide past Esau in the wound so he could be firstborn. And that's how he spent the rest of his life, the bulk of his life, doing the best he could to steal from his other older brother Esau the privileges that rightly belonged to him. And yet God somehow saw in his mercy, he saw in his mercy, in, he saw in Jacob's thievery, he saw a desire for spiritual things. Amazing. 
And in the end, God promoted Jacob. He became heir to God's blessing. Jephthah is another name. You might not recognize that name. It was also a name that the fellow Hebrews tried to forget. Jephthah was an illegitimate child. He was rejected by his own countrymen. His only acceptance was found among, quote, worthless men. The elders of Israel shunned Jephthah until they needed him. When the Ammonites launched war, the Israelites recruited Jephthah's bravery and faith. We're told the Spirit of God came upon him. And God used Jephthah to lead Israel to a great victory. The despised and the rejected became the hero. And who can forget Jonah? Oh my. Called by God to preach to Nineveh, he boarded a slow boat to the other side of the world. He ran from the will of God. Jonah was a bigot. He hated the Assyrians of Nineveh. And yet even the evil of prejudice and racism didn't cause God to wash his hands of Jonah. God spoke to Jonah in the belly of a fish. Can you imagine? You know, it's interesting. Even the fish couldn't stomach Jonah. Threw him up on the beach. But God not only could stomach Jonah, God chose to love this man. And he used the prophet to preach his word and convert an entire city. And think of another Jonah, Simon Bar-Jonah. We know him as Peter. Talk about a bruised reed and a smoking flax. Here's a man with flimsy faith. Three times Peter denied the Lord in his most critical hour. Afterwards, he was so discouraged, he just said, I'm just going to go fishing. Just threw it all in and went fishing. He figured at least he could catch fish. Wasn't really cut out for this apostlehood, but he could fish. Besides, Jesus surely wouldn't use him now. Not after his colossal failure. So Peter went back to what he knew. He figured he could fish. But by the lake, on the beach, Jesus came to him and he renewed his calling to a discouraged Peter. He told him, Peter, feed my sheep. Jephthah and Jacob and Jonah and Peter, they're all examples of God's grace in action. Understand, your failure is no greater than their failure. And yet Jesus hasn't forsaken them. That means He sure won't forsake you. Jesus doesn't bail on failed followers. Don't you give up on Jesus, for He sure hasn't given up on you. Charles Spurgeon made this comment about our text. He says, The feeblest are not disdained by Jesus. He is patient with those who are unlovely in His eyes. He longs to bind up the broken reed and fan the smoking flax into flaming life. Oh, that poor sinners would remember this and trust Him. I hope poor sinners this morning will remember that. Hey, Jesus is a splint to the bruised reed. Ever walk through a vegetable garden and see the stalks of the tomato plants all tied to wooden stakes? On their own, those stalks aren't strong enough to keep the ripening tomatoes from dragging the ground. They need help. And likewise, a bent person, a person who's been nicked or scarred, he totters under his own weight. But Jesus is the needed splint. He wraps his arm around that person 
at the very point of their break. Jesus' strength allows that person to heal. Perhaps your injury is physical. Maybe it's emotional or relational. Perhaps it's spiritual. It doesn't matter. Jesus promises to be the splint around your break that will help you grow again. You've been betrayed by a friend. Now it's difficult for you to trust another. You've loved someone and been rejected. Now you're reluctant to love again. Your marriage has been wounded. In fact, it's wobbling and it's creaking even as I speak. You're afraid that the next storm is just going to snap you both in two. You failed at a job and your confidence has been shattered. Under the pressure to provide, you now doubt your own skills and your know-how. Hey, you are a bruised reed. Jesus wants to give Himself to you. What greater gift could He give? He wants to give Himself to you. He wants you to trust Him at the point of your weakness. He wants you to rely on His strength and on His wisdom. He props us up and He builds us up. He builds up flimsy folks until they get stronger. Remember the story of Moses when Israel fought against the Amalekites? Israel had just escaped Egypt when they were confronted by the enemy in the plains of Sinai. These Amalekites, they were opportunists. They tried to jump on the Hebrews before they could train their troops and organize their army. And as the two sides clashed, Moses went up to the cliff overlooking the battlefield. When he raised his shepherd's staff, Israel gained the upper hand. But when his arms began to droop and grow weary under their own weight, Israel's army swooned. Amalek gained the advantage and seized the momentum. Well, as soon as Moses' assistants, Aaron and Hur, recognized what was happening, they flanked Moses. And they held up his arms. They supported his arms. They helped him hold up his staff long enough for Israel to thoroughly trounce its enemies. And this is what Jesus, this is the help that Jesus offers you and me. When we grow weary, when we break, when we can't find the strength to carry on, He doesn't just sit back and watch the enemy gain the upper hand. Oh no. He surrounds us and He supports us. And He helps us elevate our faith. In the words of our text, He sends forth justice to victory. Well, Jesus is a splint to the bruised reed. And He is a flint to the smoking flax. Bear's grills. You know bear's grills? I only became aware of this guy through my two sons. He stars in the, in the survival show Man vs. Wild. It's my boy's favorite show. Used to be. I think now it's Moonshiners. I don't, I don't know about that. <laughs> but whenever Bears gets dropped down into a harsh environment, he's always got one thing with him. He's always carrying one thing in his pocket. He's carrying Flint. He's always got his flint. For with that small piece of flint, you can do so much. You can kindle a fire. And with fire, you can do almost anything. You can cook. And you can boil water. And you can stay warm. And you can dry clothes. Do you know what a blessing fire is? I mean, all of life becomes easier with fire. You get fire and you get excited, man. All Things become possible when you have fire. And the same is true spiritually. 
Oh, life without spiritual fire. Life without passion and enthusiasm and motivation and excitement and love and hope. That kind of a life can be very, very difficult. It can become a grind. But life with fire becomes exciting again. Imagine two different rooms on a cold, frozen, frosty night. The the first room, it has a roaring fire in the fireplace. The family's all gathered around the hearth. They're all enjoying the smells and the light and the warmth of the fire. But now the second room. On this chilly night, the fireplace is empty. Folks walk through this room. But there's no living being done in this room. No one lives here. Why? Because there's no warmth or light to attract people. Because there's no fire. And what I've described to you is not just two rooms. I've described two lives. One life contains the flame of God. The Holy Spirit lives inside the person. And people are attracted to the love and the warmth and the light that they sense. But the other life is cold and empty and lonely. There is no life in this room because there's no fire. The fire's gone out. There's nothing to attract other people to come. You see, our tendency is to walk off from that room that's cold and empty. To walk through it, to get get past it. Why hang out there? There's no fire. (laughs) But understand, Jesus refuses to leave such a space. Or such a life. He wants to build a fire again. He has flint. He comes with flint. Jesus is the spark that can get the fires of love and passion burning again. Sometimes it's hard to start a fire. You have to prime it, and then you have to be patient, and then you have to be persistent. But remember, those are all traits that characterize Jesus. And not only can Jesus relight a fire in your heart, He can do the same in your marriage, or with a friendship, or for a confidence. Jesus can take smoldering, smoking, kindling, a flicker of a flame, And he can fan it into a blaze. Jesus can reignite a ministry that had nearly died out. Jesus can revive a dream or a vision that was almost extinguished. Jesus can rekindle a respect that had been doused with disappointment. Recall what John the Baptist said of Jesus. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Jesus is the Lord of the spark. That's just another reason why I love Him so. He can fire up a new life. Understand the spiritual warfare that surrounds this ministry of Jesus. Our Lord is a splint and He is a flint. Whereas our enemy is a harsh wind and a wet blanket. You see, Satan's nature is just the opposite of Jesus' nature. Satan has the killer instinct. Do, Do you understand what I mean when I use that expression? The killer instinct? I mean, such a person doesn't just want to beat their opponent. They want to punish them. When a man falls down, the goal is to 
finish him off. The idea behind the killer instinct is not just to win, but to humiliate and to conquer. You know, a football player with the killer instinct, he doesn't just tackle the poor quarterback. He wants to disable him. He wants to try to put him out of the game. And Satan has this kind of killer instinct. Oh, Satan just doesn't bend the reed. It does, he doesn't just break its skin. No, he's the harsh wind that blows in to tear it in two. Satan doesn't just let the fire die down. He's the wet blanket. He's the bucket of water that wants to snuff out all of the coals. And if it were not for Jesus, Satan would work his cruel work on us. There would be no hope for recovery. Our first failure would be fatal. Our first sin would be our last hope. Jesus is the one who keeps hope alive. Obviously, there are a lot of factors that contribute to the emotions we feel. But most of us don't consider a main cause for our turbulence. The highs and the lows we go through that sweep over us at times. That wave of encouragement that gets followed by a crashing wave of disappointment and discouragement. Did you know that often it is the direct result of spiritual warfare? I mean, when feelings of despair strike you at a strange time, and for no apparent reason, there may be, actually be a spiritual battle raging to sink your faith. Discouragement isn't always traceable to discernible causes. Sometimes it just happens. But encouragement can come in the same mysterious manner, I've found. Recently, my sons and I, they... We were burning some debris in the meadow below our house. The boys, they, they were in charge of the fire. They, they, in fact, they built it before I got there. They had this huge bonfire going in the meadow. Attracted a few of the neighbors' concern. Later in the day, though, I, I doused the, the bonfire with, with fire, put it all out. Created a lot of smoke, but thought I'd put the fire out. It was a Full two days later. Two days, mind you, later. I noticed smoke rising up from the meadow. I couldn't believe there was still fire in that, in that pile. I couldn't believe that it still had life. The fire still had life. But the wind had kicked up. And apparently it had ignited a spark. And it had relit those smoldering ashes. And I thought, this is what Jesus does. Even when there's no visible reason to be optimistic. Even when you think it's completely died out. Even when a positive outlook isn't tied to anything tangible. Even when you see and think that it's all burned out before your very eyes. Hope can swoop in from God's throne of grace and give fire that life again. Jesus comes and He works in us like a splint and like a flint. The starting point for you and I comes at the end of this morning's text. Notice Isaiah says, In His name, Gentiles will trust. And i got to ask you this morning, do you trust in Jesus do you trust in Jesus? Now, not just in the macro sense. No, do you trust Him in the micro sense? 
I have a, another son who's pursuing a business degree in college, and he has to take two basic economics classes. He has to take macroeconomics and microeconomics. He asked me which he should take. I had to do a little research. Macroeconomics is the overview of how different markets, they work together to create growth and cause inflation and, and produce jobs, how markets interact. Whereas microeconomics deals with the choices of individuals and companies that are trying to make a profit within that market. Macro deals with the overarching issues. Micro deals with the individual choices. Now let me suggest to you that there is such a thing as macro faith and micro faith. Macro faith embraces the overarching truths of our faith, of Christianity. There is a God. His Son is Jesus. He died to save us from our sins. He's alive today. The Bible is God's Word. These are macro truths. These are the big overarching truths in which we must believe. But there is also that which we would call micro faith. And this describes the faith that I apply in my own personal life, in my own personal struggles. This is the trust I put in Jesus in the nitty-gritty of my life when I let Him influence my thought life, when I obey Him in my finances, when I lean on Him to meet an emotional need with which I'm struggling. But understand the micro and the macro are very important. Eternal salvation depends on macro faith. But a bruised reed and a smoking flax needs micro faith. You see, you need to be able to trust Jesus at the point of the break. At the moment when the fire is about to die out. That's when your faith needs to kick in. 2,000 years ago, a man was rejected. He was beaten, he was crucified, and he was buried. But three days later, that man rose from the dead, never to die again. You believe that, don't you? Do you believe that? Yet the empty tomb is proof of so much more. Right now, your back is against the wall. You face what you think are insurmountable problems. You're looking around for reasons to hope, but you're not finding many. That's why you need to look again to that empty tomb. You see, Jesus too was a damaged reed. He too became cold embers. Are your problems any greater than the problems that Jesus faced? Certainly not. Yet our Lord Jesus triumphed over our arch enemies, over sin and death. Now with that victory under his belt, nothing is impossible for Jesus. Understand, your discouragement, it isn't really a big deal. In the grand scheme of things, your discouragement is tiny. It's the size of a mere quarter. In contrast, Jesus is larger than the sun. His light shines brighter. His warmth generates a greater power. But you see, here's what can happen. If I hold a quarter close to my eyeball, between my eye and the sun, to me, at that moment, that quarter becomes larger than the sun itself. 
If I allow it, a small coin can block out the enormous sun. And in the same way, just a little discouragement can have a devastating effect on my faith. This is why you've got to dig in your heels. This is why you've got to trust Jesus in the midst of your mess. If you want the light and the warmth and the love of God, you can't allow discouragement to come between your eyes and God's Son. I love the story of the dad who was taking his little boy on a fishing trip the next day. It had been planned for weeks. The excitement had been building in the little boy. And that night, before the big day, his father tucked him into bed. The little guy looked up at his father and he said, Daddy, thank you for tomorrow. I like that. Daddy, thank you for tomorrow. For this is what faith will say to Jesus. Lord, thank you for tomorrow. For Jesus rose from the dead to be there in your tomorrows. Even when your strength fails... Even when your passion fades, He promises to be there in your tomorrow. A bruised reed, He will not break. Smoking flax, He will not quench. This is how Jesus promises to treat you. Now you should decide to trust Him. Father, thank You for Your Word today. Thank you that you're for us and not against us. Thank you that we can be strong in your strength. Lord, I pray that you'll come this morning and you'll wrap yourself around the break in our heart, the wound in our spirit, the stain on our mind, the crippled part of our will. I pray this morning that you would come, you would wrap yourself around that fractured marriage or that troubled friendship or that estranged relationship between parents and children. Oh Lord, I pray this morning that you would wrap yourself around that waning momentum, that hopelessness, that despair, discouragement. What we need is Jesus. We pray this morning that you would wrap yourself around our break, our heartache. Help us to trust you with it. Specifically with it. And Lord, I pray that you would fan the flame this morning. We need fire again. We need fire in our hearts. We need for you, Lord, to come with your flint and stoke the fire and fan the flame and relight the passion and the enthusiasm and the excitement and the hope that this world is almost extinguished. Forgive us, Lord, for letting our doubts become bigger in our minds and in our vision than our God. Forgive us, Lord. We recognize the problem is us and our faith, our little faith. 
Lord, I pray that it will grow a little bigger today. Grow a little bigger. And that we would leave this morning, Father, trusting in Jesus. For He is a flint. He is a splint. We love You, Lord. We thank You for standing with us, keeping our hands raised. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And you know, as our heads are bowed and while our eyes are closed,